Live from the biggest small town in America, it's the Saturday Night Special with Amy Goose. Seven twenty, WGN. So this week, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed a pretty controversial gaming bill legalizing mobile sports wagering just days after Iowa and Montana passed similar bills. This almost exactly a year after the Supreme Court ruling that federal that federal law that banned states from legalizing sports betting was unconstitutional and therefore states could make their own decisions on the matter. According to the American Gaming Association, gaming in general in the U.S. is a 240 billion with a B dollar industry, employing 1.7 million people in 40 states. In 2016, gaming taxes contributed nearly 9 billion in state and local tax revenues. Illegal gambling, sports betting in particular, is estimated to be approximately a $150 billion industry. Now, some economists argue that that number is just far too high. After all, that would be about 14 times more than Americans spend going to the movies, and about twice as much as they put into grooming and feeding their pets. But illegal markets are hard to measure. In any case, it's a lot. And on the heels of the Supreme Court ruling, states are starting to open up the debate on sports betting and recognizing that the technology that powers the gaming industry has evolved and more modern laws are needed. Although we're talking about it a lot right now, given its evolving legal status, it, of course, is not new. British colonies, in fact, used lotteries to raise money. And interestingly enough, a 1769 restriction by the British crown was one of the issues that fueled tensions leading to the Revolutionary War. During Prohibition, towns that already had tax positions about various vices became major gambling centers thus upping tourism. The Great Depression saw legalized gambling in some light forms like bingo and so forth, mostly to allow civic groups to raise money. In Nevada, a combination of the stock market crash of 1929 coupled with the cost of building the Hoover Dam brought about the legalization of gambling in most forms to provide a source of revenue for the state. And well, by now we all know that what happens in Vegas indeed stays there. An Oxford economics study indicated that legalizing sports gambling would contribute about $23 billion to the U.S. GDP. And not surprisingly, everybody wants their cut. Casino owners, government, sports leagues, tech companies. And how that money gets split up impacts all of us as consumers, if so inclined to put our money down on sports. So tonight, we'll explore the topic of legalized gambling, sports betting in particular. We'll hear from a history professor about the evolution of gambling in the U.S. to give us some context. We'll talk with an Indiana state representative to look for the legislative work that led up to last week. A sports journalist who covers the industry of sports betting and with an entrepreneur who's looking to challenge the economic framework with which we think about gambling. I'm Amy Guth, and that's all coming up tonight on the Saturday Night Special. We'll be right back to get the conversation underway on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's 
It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. And as ever, we take one big topic and we spend the whole night talking about it in different ways with different people. And tonight, that topic is gambling. In particular, we're going to be kind of focusing on sports wagering because that's been up with our neighbors in Indiana and our neighbors in Iowa. Both of those things got both of those states legalized sports gambling this past week. And many other states are having these conversations about sports wagering uh, because on Tuesday, it's a year anniversary since the Supreme Court ruling around that topic, letting states decide for themselves. So we're going to be taking a look at that tonight. In a little bit, on the other side of the 730 news, we're going to be talking with Indiana State Representative Terry Austin, who worked on that legislation in Indiana and kind of get a behind-the-scenes look of what that's, what that was like and, and some issues and building consensus and all of that. And then a little bit later in the show, in the 8 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Adam Candy, who's managing editor of Legal Sports Report and a host on ESPN Las Vegas, kind of taking a look at what that what the what that would mean to sports journalism. I think that's a really interesting topic. Not only has Adam been covering this topic for for quite a quite a while and, and very much in depth at Legal Sports Report and some other outlets, uh, you know, here the idea of if if most states or all states were to suddenly legalize sports gambling, what would that do to sports journalism? Would it do anything? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. You know, for example, Fox announced this week that it's going to partner with a uh, bet taker called BetStars. So it, lots of issues like that, lots of considerations. And then we're going to close the show talking with Matthew Curtis, who is the founder of a company called Vice Lotteries, which is really interesting. I always like to put uh, somebody in that last spot of the show that's doing something really future facing or really outside of the box. And this is certainly, certainly someone who qualifies. And he's really trying to change the literal game of gambling. So we're going to be talking with him a little bit later. But but right now on the program, we are joined by Kevin Kaufman, he, who holds a PhD from Loyola University in American history. And he's the, we, we've had him on the show before. Longtime listeners will know and remember him. Dr. K, hello. Welcome back to the program. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um, so, Absolutely. So this is an interesting topic, right? I think as I started to research the history of gambling in the U.S., especially sports wagering, it got really interesting because it seems like major moments in American history, this is threaded through it. This was not like a standalone thing that popped up in isolation. We've kind of been, we've had this for quite a while here, and it's it's kind of been in the room for a lot of big moments in history. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we've uh, we've gambled quite a bit, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, sports gambling, uh, card games, dice. You know, for a really long time, it, if it was illegal, it wasn't enforced, and a lot of times, it wasn't even illegal. It was kind of that look the other way kind of atmosphere for a lot of it, unless it was, you know, completely okay. So, I think. We, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, we just, um, we like to bet. We do. We like to bet because I think it's, it has the promise of, well, a lot of, it appeals to a lot of things, right? It appeals to, I was right. It appeals to, I gained a little money. And I think especially if you're struggling with money, that's a, that's a very shiny, wonderful promise. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, it's about fortune and chance and are, are, is Lady Luck on my side or the odds in my favor? It really speaks to a lot of things to, about hope that I think are really interesting. One detail that, that I, I read about, and there wasn't a ton out there, but you probably know 50 books on the topic. You being you. Uh, but I, I was reading about how 
uh, a restriction in uh, 1769 by the British crown started fueling, was one of the issues fueling tensions leading up uh, to the Revolutionary War. So that was, you know, colonists brought it with them and were doing all kind of, you know, all kind of gambling and using lotteries to raise money and whatnot. And then here it is in the room as we step into Revolutionary War time. Yeah, actually, I didn't know that one. <laughs> but, I'm here uh, to that help. doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and then we, th- I mean, I think we think of it like mostly with a Chicago connection, like during Prohibition. You know, we think about like the speakeasy, the back room, the the bathtub gin, and it was just kind of like a time of secret vice. So so it seems to me that as we're entering this time of states having conversations about legalizing different forms of gambling. And and I think this sits alongside conversations about legalizing marijuana in various ways. It's really about revisiting a, a taboo, maybe, that we've had since, you know, for, for years and years in this country. Oh, for sure. I think that's uh, it's one of the things that it's almost like a cycle of, you know, the 1880s, 90s, 1910s. All of these these things become illegal. You know, all of these, like you said, vices that we had become enemy number one and it, it all, it's all tied into uh gambling and drinking and you know the criminalization of marijuana and how all that comes about that all of a sudden you know not all of a sudden but you know like you said then we get to prohibition and yet we all want to kind of sneak our way around it and find the back room and and find the seedy places as some might say but you know, and I think we're kind of swinging back to, well, maybe it's it's okay to let people have their their vices a little bit. Right. It is interesting, though. You know, as you as you list off the vices, we we tend to you know be uh, ha- have a major taboo or a major hang up about things of oh that who could ever do X Y Z, and then as the needle moves on attitudes with those, it's like okay. I can, I, I'll move from being the moral police to I'll just tax this thing. And that becomes like a, a, a more um, socially acceptable way to still cast aspersions on that vice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The great uh, syntax that right. we always seem to throw out there. And, but I think as long as we keep it, especially the things that we keep promoting that are actually bad for you, like smoking, the syntax eventually isn't going to work because, well, we we actually want you to quit smoking. But I think with gambling, it's it's probably a little bit safer for the state. And I think that's, too, where the taboo starts to um, kind of get shifted in that, you know, thinking back to that time of like the 1910s and stuff when a lot of gambling is really being cracked down on. It's very interesting that, for instance, horse racing is never illegal. Um, and wagering at the track is never illegal because that's, you know, that's kind of you know, the people who raise horses and frequent those places tend to be, you know, pretty wealthy, middle class. Same thing with country clubs and all the betting that goes on there. That never was ever going to be regulated. But anything that was done kind of in the in the streets, in the in the tenderloin districts, that was really where things had to go. So, you know, now that now that racetracks and such things are really hurting for money. It's not a big shock that states are kind of thinking, well, how else can we make money? Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? Because then it becomes about 
uh, it's only wrong if it's about uh, it becomes very classist and it's only wrong if poor, mm-hmm. you know poor people are doing it and then it's horrible but if it's done gentlemanly like if it's over a friendly game of golf or horse racing or a card game at a country club it's perfectly okay because we're gentlemen which is I think a thing we've seen again and again not just you know outside of gambling we've seen it again and again in history right. but but I mean to me that points to we we've always kind of in a sense I guess used it like well okay but we can make money on it you know I'm thinking about you know making the making of Las Vegas right here's this moment mm-hmm. where where the the crash of 1929 still reeling from that and then the cost of building the Hoover Dam is really hitting hitting the state and suddenly it's like well okay maybe we could do some gambling raise some revenue and it's a hit right and suddenly the the perfect storm of you know investors and high profile people get involved and it becomes this perfect thing so to me you know and then we see it like again we also see it in in like in the great depression when it's like okay bingo's okay to raise money but as long as it's for a good cause so it seems like this weird this push pull kind of negotiation mm-hmm. with throughout american history of of like well it's okay if we need it but otherwise it's bad right yeah, and that's uh, that's a great example too of like uh, the daily numbers and things like that. That you know, for years and years, that was very illegal. You know, racketeering and all the different ways that they would come up with how to you know determine the daily number. And then when the state gets involved, of course, it's well, that's perfectly okay. Um, you know, that's it's not nearly as bad if Springfield or whichever state capital is capitalizing on it, and. I think it would it would be such a shock now, I think, to somebody, say, from 1915, if you could play your numbers on a Sunday. I think they would absolutely just be blown away that we do such things. That's an interesting point, right? We, last time you were on the show was when we were uh, we were talking about uh, a lot about prohibition and how some mm-hmm. blue laws still exist, like buying alcohol on a Sunday right. in some places. And I think that's really interesting. Now, however, I think if someone from 1915 came in, the first thing they'd have to get their head around would be Twitter. They'd be like, what's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like telegrams, but weird and mean. I don't know. <laughs> Right, and in your pocket. So yeah, just don't. It's a it's a telegram machine. <laughs> There'd be a lot of shocks. I think gambling would be but one of them. Well, as ever, yeah. I appreciate you for giving some context to this topic. Always appreciate you. I wish we had hours and hours to talk more in depth with you about it. But thank you so much for joining the program. Always appreciate you, Kevin Kaufman. My pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much. All right, we're yeah. going to take a little break and get you the news, all that good stuff. Back in just a bit here on seven twenty WGN. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. So a little bit earlier today, I spoke with Indiana State Representative Terry Austin about the legislative work leading up to last week when uh, on Wednesday, the uh, Indiana governor signed into law that to legalize sports gambling. So a little bit earlier, I talked to her. Here is what she said. So this controversial gaming bill was signed into law in Indiana this week, legalizing mobile sports betting and allowing for a new casino in the state. So if you would describe for us the process. I know there were initially a couple versions of this bill, Indiana Senate Bill 552. Tell, talk us through that process of, of that, that bill and, and the debate around it there. Well, the the bill was actually um, the a comprehensive gaming bill was introduced in the Senate um, and by Senator Mark Messmer, who's a former House member. Senate Bill five fifty two and Mark actually spent the summer meeting with various gaming um, interest groups. You know, folks who work on behalf of casinos, casinos, the riverboats, 
and sports betting and tried to put together what he thought was a comprehensive bill that addressed all of the gaming issues um, in the state of Indiana that needed to have some decisions made or at least some debate. Um, The bill came out of the Senate Public Policy Committee, went to the Senate uh, Leave Tax and Fiscal Policy, and then ultimately came out um, third reading in the Senate, and it was a significant vote. I mean, it was an overwhelming vote. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but you can certainly look those up. Um, And then it comes over, it starts all over again in the House, um, it was assigned to public policy, of which I am a member, and the chairman spent several several weeks actually looking at the bill, contemplating some changes, um, and then in committee introduced the chairman's amendment, um, which made some dramatic changes to the bill. Understanding that gaming bills are always a work in progress, It was important, at least the overwhelming majority of the committee members felt it was important to keep the bill moving because they knew it was going to continue to undergo additional changes. It went from um, public policy to the House Ways and Means Committee, came out and went through some additional changes in Ways and Means, came out on the floor, um, and again, had a, a fairly overwhelming vote. I want to say it was 79 to uh, maybe 79 to 21 maybe or 79 to 20 and then at that point you've got two different versions of the bill so it goes to conference committee i was the one of the house sponsors of the bill and so was the democrat as on the conference committee um, and the House, the House Democrat, and then there was a Senate Democrat, and then a Senate and House Republicans both. So, you know, at that point, the conferees start discussing the bill. I met with advisors to see what their primary goals for the legislation would be. And in the end, there was a series of give and take, and we came down to, we got out on a Wednesday. On Monday, um, there was a conference committee report that was produced um, primarily by House House Republicans. And at that point, over the weekend, what had happened is our Constitution requires that any um, tax and revenue bill has to start in the House. So since this bill had actually started in the Senate, they needed to take the contents, put it into a House bill, and they moved all the advisors, all the conferees over, and it, so it basically became House Bill 1015. Um, say, and, and a conference committee had been introduced, but there was not a lot of interest by at least three of the parties in signing it at that point because we were working on some other provisions that we felt had been in the bill um, on the Senate side that we wanted to have in the bill on the House side. So some negotiations took place, um, some conversations among the conferees, um, and then ultimately we were able to get first three signatures on the language, and then the fourth came along and, you know, we voted the bill out, and that's what happened. 
You know, it seemed in in watching this unfold in Indiana, um, it, it certainly seemed like uh, context for mobile use was such a, a sticking point and and really took a lot of nuanced thinking and language around that. What was the process and and, and the main narrative, I guess, for for overcoming that and and reaching a consensus with that? Well, I think it's just recognizing that the technology behind gaming changes every day. Um, And, you know, one of the things we wanted to have was some integrity around the age of folks who sign up for mobile sports betting, trying to create a regulatory framework that had a chance at success um, that there already were some, um, so what I call some regulatory infrastructure in place, and that's why we included in the bill the requirement that the gaming, uh, the sports wagering could take place at riverboats, casinos, the new Vigo County Casino, if they choose to pass one through a referendum, and then satellite facilities, OTBs. Um, and then it. It, those folks already have a regulatory framework process and integrity in place. And so folks have to go sign up there. You have to show your proof of age. And then there'll be mobile apps available for people to take advantage of that after they've established an account. It's the establishment of the initial account that we think is so important. But if you said that you could only, only conduct sports betting at any of these facilities that I just named, we've got large areas of our state that don't have access to those. And so that, to me, begs the question, well, are you really going to draw people into the legal framework then? Or is we going to continue to have illegal sports betting, which we know goes on and in Indiana is estimated to be a $300 million a year industry. So the mobile piece of it, um, I think, is twofold. It recognizes that access to, you know, folks who want to engage in this, um, they have to, they're going to have to set up an account first. Uh, After that, you don't necessarily want to preclude them because it's not right. And I think it could be subject to a legal challenge at some point. And then the second thing is to make sure that you want them to enter into the, the legal, um, enterprise and not be swept up in the illegal enterprise. And, and, you know, as you're saying this, I'm I'm thinking of this so closely mirrors what we see in other sectors of business, right? Where we say, okay, the the retailers, the the brick and mortar retailers are having to shift as behavior is more about shopping online and it's about convenience. And I, I wonder, it, it to to this might be too much of a of an oversimplification, but on some level, it does seem like modernizing a law to to keep up with technology and how people. You you know, convenience is going to usually win out. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, that's exactly the example I thought about earlier today. I was thinking about our conversation. And I mean, that's exactly what's happened. Um, You know, brick and mortar retail, grocery shopping. I mean, think of all the things that you do now. I can even sit and order my groceries um, in the convenience of my own home, have a cup of coffee in the morning, schedule the time I'm going to pick them up, and pick, call, drive to the store, they're ready to go, or 
if I'm lucky enough to live in a larger metropolitan area, I can even have them delivered to my house. Even television, you know, or how you watch mobile entertainment. Um, and that's what I think folks have to remember. Yes, gaming is a regulated enterprise, but it's also entertainment for people. And um, you want people to be responsible about it. You want them to be legal about it. But entertainment has changed dramatically. That is the conversation I had a little bit earlier today with Indiana State Representative Terry Austin. We're going to take a little break, finish that conversation here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Before the break, I was speaking with Indiana State Representative Terry Austin. Uh, We were playing a conversation we had earlier today. We're talking about legalizing sports betting in Indiana. So let's hear part two of that conversation. When debate first arose around this topic in Indiana, what were were there some misconceptions floating around or, or people that were maybe trying to oversimplify but glossing over details or something like that? I don't think so. I think it's just the speed with which, you know, we had to get into sports betting. You know, when the Supreme Court ruled that PAPSA was no longer, um, you know, was unconstitutional, states were basically out there and all of a sudden had to decide okay, we know this is coming, we know um, we need to make a decision about whether we're going to be a player or not. There were several conferences and study committees over the summer. So I think folks, you know, folks were trying, on top of the regular gaming issues that arose and needed to be, you know, discussed and debated and decided upon. And so sports betting um, was certainly one of the more complex issues that was thrown into the mix. But the other thing I think is really important, and if Illinois takes away anything from the Indiana experience, I would encourage them to vest much of the regulatory decision-making and rulemaking with their gaming commission. We have an outstanding gaming commission in Indiana, and they have a lot of integrity. There's never been a problem. In fact, our gaming commissioner, our gaming executive director, Sarah Gonzo-Tate, was named the National Gaming Commissioner of the Year, National Regulator of the Year. Um, and they are the ones who I think have the capacity to perform the due diligence to make sure that there is integrity in the sports betting enterprise to decide if at the collegiate level, which sports you're going to allow betting on to decide the, the things like um, what they call league data, if you're going to, you know, when professional sports are involved for what they call in-play, and in-play is what happens from the beginning of the start of an event till the end of the start of the event. And so that's what we did uh, is – you know, we set some parameters, but basically gave the Gaming Commission the authority to establish not only the rules, but to decide whether or not you could. I mean, we basically said no sports betting on um, intramural, no sports betting on high school sports. Um, there's some discussion of only, only um, allowing it to take place with Division One sports and then only maybe three or four of the Division One sports. So, again, that's where you have to trust that the um, Gaming Commission is going to only approve what they feel they have the capacity to regulate. So, in your mind, what will the biggest benefits be to, to Indiana for, for legalizing sports betting? 
Well, it's one more amenity that will take place at our established um, gaming facilities. We're not anticipating that it's going to be a huge moneymaker for the state um, because so many other states are going to enter into this field. But we also think that, I mean, there will be some revenue for the state, but more importantly, it's, and, and this is why we also included in this gaming legislation, we moved up the ability to have live dealers table games at our two racinos who up until January 1st of next year were only allowed to have um, electronic gambling machines, slots, video simulations, things like that. It's to say if we're going to have gaming in Indiana, we're trying to create everybody on a level playing field where they have similar amenities and can provide patrons with a complement of experiences. The other thing, I think, is to give us a chance to actually see how sports wagering actually plays out in our state. I trust that the Gaming Commission will go slowly on, you know, as we introduce this, and it starts July 1st, I believe. So, you know, we've heard from William Hill and some of the others, and that's what I think most of the the gaming facilities will utilize a sports book, quite honestly. And then we, but you know, interestingly enough, we also heard from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway folks, the Pacers folks. I didn't hear so much from the Colts people, but you know, everybody's concerned that they want to have a reliable gaming experience, but they also want it to to have protections for players, athletes. And patrons. Are there any preemptive measures being done on fear that maybe anything about gambling addiction or anything like that? I know that's been kind of a big talking point of the opposition to sports gambling when, you know, I think the truth of the matter is really it's happening, whether it's legal or not, and someone's going to get addicted to gambling, whether they're doing it legally or not. Uh, is there any kind of formal process being done to uh, help make any kind of, of gambling addiction help a little more accessible to people in the state as this rolls out? Sure. Our sports wagering tax is 9.5% on the adjusted gross receipts, and 3.3% of that tax revenue has to be deposited in the Addiction Services Fund. We made some changes to how the money in the Addiction Services Fund can be spent. It can also be spent on certification of folks who treat addiction. We did it for outreach. We we changed the definition of how it could be spent for outreach, for um, education, for awareness, and then also making sure that treatment facilities are available or treatment systems are available. That's a conversation I had a little bit earlier today with Indiana State Representative Terry Austin, giving us a kind of a behind the scenes look at that process as sports gambling became legalized just this past week in Indiana. Right now, we're going to take a little break, get you news, all that good stuff back in just a bit on 720 WGN. (music) 
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us this evening. As ever, we take one big topic and start unpacking it and looking at it from a lot of different angles. And tonight, that topic is gambling, in particular sports betting, because that is a, a topic on a lot of people's minds right now, especially on the state level as we come up on the year uh, anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling saying, hey, states, you can do whatever you want. It's up to you. So who better to talk with about this topic than someone who has covered this very thing extensively. We're joined now by Adam Candy, who is managing editor at Legal Sports Report and a host on ESPN Las Vegas. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, we're having some technical issues with Adam, so we're just going to give that one second for him. Uh, and a little bit later, we're going to also be talking with Matthew Curtis, who's a founder at Vice Lotteries, which is a company that's literally tr- trying to just totally change the game. So stick around after the 830 news. We'll talk with him. I think we got our technical issues worked out with Adam now. So let's check in with him. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. There you are. We got our technical stuff worked out. Very good. Well, I, I can think of, of no publication that has covered this topic more than yours, and that is Legal Sports Report. Uh, really a lot of stuff there. And and in particular, you've talked to a lot of lawmakers in Illinois. So so let's start right there. I think you have a very, uh, probably a better perspective on everything that's happening in Illinois with this with regard to this topic than anyone. So kind of set the stage for us of, of where we're at right now and where the where the breakdowns are happening. No problem. Well, we're coming up on one year since the repeal of PASPA, the federal ban on single-game sports wagering. And the removal of that ban, of course, made it possible for states to choose whether or not they would like to legalize sports betting. Uh, Illinois has sports betting mixed in with a number of other casino-related issues, and it's a very complicated landscape. We're talking about bills that go back a number of years that we're still trying to work from the pieces of, work from those bones, and add sports betting now into them. So most recently, uh, we've seen five different proposals for how to operate sports betting in Illinois. That's what we began with just about a week ago. Um, we saw uh, Representative uh, Mike Zalewski narrowed that to two. Uh, two proposals that have a number of um, different angles to them. And right now, the breakdown is trying to figure out, does Illinois want to achieve in terms of tax rate and licensing? Where do they want to set those fees? Where can they encourage the operators like DraftKings, FanDuel, some of the larger companies involved in this, to come into Illinois and operate while at the same time still making sports betting a profitable enterprise for the state. So Governor Pritzker initially suggested a $10 million licensing fee and a tax rate around 20%. Uh, We've now seen that fee in some cases, uh, it's a bit complicated, but up closer to 15 to 20 million. That would be the highest licensing fee in the nation if it were to go through uh, tax rate between 20-25%. So as those go up, of course, the potential profit for the state goes up, but you get some pushback from uh, the operators who would be coming in to put sports betting in place in Illinois because they, despite the market size of Chicago and beyond, would be then in a less profitable situation for themselves. 
You know, I'm glad that you mentioned FanDuel. I wanted to bring that up because just this past week, we heard the, the CEO of the company say, hey, if if you can pass this in Illinois, we're happy to put, uh, you know, put an office in Chicago and that's going to bring 300 jobs in and make this Midwest hub. So to me, this kind of points to, oh, look, it's politics as usual. And this is as mired in political issues as any topic. I would agree. Uh, if you look at the lobbying force, that FanDuel and DraftKings have employed in other states. I mean, it's, it's up over a dozen in some states uh, in terms of the lobbying power that they've put into this. So that much is definitely politics as usual. And what you said with FanDuel offering to, uh, to put an office in Chicago, I think that's the usual sort of horse trading that we see at the political level. Uh, you know, for FanDuel, the cost of putting an office in Chicago would be certainly minimal when compared to the profit that they see uh, in potential from a state as populous as Illinois. Yeah. And and so because uh, because Legal Sports Report has been kind of on this from the start and reporting so much about this across the country, state by state, where does it seem like we're, how's it going to look at the end of 2019? It seems like a lot of states are going, OK, we got to figure this out. Clock's ticking on us. We saw Iowa, Illinois and Montana this past week. A lot of other conversations are happening. Who seems like, uh, you know, who seems like the, the most likely candidate to go in the, the second half of the year? Well, my crystal ball at the beginning of the year was a bit murky, and I don't know that I could have predicted that Montana would be the first state to legalize sports betting in 2019, but there it was up in big sky country. Um, Montana went first, Indiana right behind. Um, we are anticipating that Tennessee will go into law without the governor's signature uh, in the coming weeks, so that'll put us up to three. Uh, governor Reynolds in Iowa has up to 30 days, which I think we're down to about if I'm not mistaken, 20 in that period now to make a decision on the sports betting law there. So we could be looking at four coming in. The state of Arkansas is going to start sometime around Memorial Day. They legalized sports betting in uh, the election in 2018. So you began this year with eight states having some sort of legal sports betting operation. You'll probably look at four more coming in fairly soon. Now, when we start to look at the second half of 2019, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Illinois is obviously in the discussion. If you were to make me, uh, not to be too cliche to what we're talking about, but to place a wager, um, I would probably bet against Illinois at this point. Not heavily. Uh, I think it's less than 50-50. Uh, I would look to Michigan. Uh, Michigan actually passed the sports betting law at the end of its legislative session last year that was vetoed by outgoing, outgoing Governor Snyder. Uh, there's still momentum in the legislature to pass sports betting for Michigan, so I would look at Michigan. Uh, New York is a quagmire of um, politics and questions in terms of what they're ultimately going to do, but New York is still within the discussion right now. So those are the states that I would keep an eye on uh, as we head into the second half of 2019. Indeed. We're talking with Adam Candy, Managing Editor of Legal Sports Report. We're going to take a little break and we come back. If you can stick with us, Adam, I have some other questions for you, particularly about how this might shift the way we do... Uh, the I'm put you on hold. Sounds like you got a truck going by you, but uh, particularly around the way that this might impact sports reporting, sports journal- sports journalism as a whole. I, I think that's a, an interesting topic and something we should think through a bit. So more on this here in just a bit on 720 WGN.
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. As ever, we take one big topic and we talk about it all night. And tonight, that topic is sports betting. It's a topic on a lot of people's minds. Lots of states are having that conversation. So we're joined now by Adam Candy, who's managing editor at Legal Sports Report. When before the break, we were talking about this topic a bit and, and kind of beginning to unpack it a little bit. There's so much here, Adam. I wish we could have you on for hours because so much information there at LegalSportsReport.com. But I, I want to take a look now and shift a little bit about um, what do you think it will mean to sports journalism if on a, on a federal level, if state by state, most states end up uh, legalizing sports betting, might that shift the way that we think about covering sports? I think there's no question. I, it has already begun. If you look at the news just from this week, a major deal was announced between Fox Sports and the Stars Group, which is a poker and sports betting operator. Uh, Fox purchased a stake in the Stars Group of uh, nearly a quarter billion dollars, and Fox Sports itself is going to launch a betting app. So we're going to see a merge here from a company that holds some of the biggest broadcast rights in all professional sports and the gambling industry. They're going to jump in with both feet with an app called Fox Bet. Um, so that you're, I think when you see things like that happening, you realize that not only is this going to be something where there are probably journalists dedicated to covering, you know, who do you bet on and, you know, what teams are our uh, best favorites and so on like that, you're going to see where there's a financial interest in it for some of the larger players and media as well. Uh, I think what you're ultimately going to see is that as more states legalize, this becomes something that enters into the casual discussion a lot more easily than it has in the past. You know, in the days of of Jimmy the Greek and some of the, you know, sort of, uh, I don't want to say seedier characters, but they were certainly viewed that way when it came to sports betting in the mainstream. You had to speak in code. Uh, Brent Musburger, who started the VSIM network, uh, someone who used to work gambling references into the broadcast in sort of covert ways. And now it's something that can be discussed a bit more openly. Right. And then I think another issue, you know, when we're thinking about like how that will play out in newsrooms in particular, where, where ethics are discussed so often, I think another issue that, that perhaps is not included too much in the, the broader public conversation uh, about this topic, I, and this is anecdotally me kind of pontificating here, but, but I feel like a lot of people are not super clear on how the leagues play into this and that leagues, you know, look to get their cut of this and, and, you know, everybody wants a piece of this pie, but I think the part of where leagues step in, it gets really murky, and I think I feel like there's a lot of misconception around that. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, when it comes to covering it from a news perspective, uh, it's important to remember the history here, that when we talk about PASPA, the, the ban, that was a ban that had stood for better than 25 years, and when New Jersey ultimately challenged that ban and was successful at the Supreme Court level, it's important to remember who was opposing them. Every major professional sports league came out against the uh, legalization of sports betting. They were all involved in that case. I mean, it began as uh, Governor Christie versus the NCAA, but the other four professional sports leagues jumped in and sounded alarm bells and said, this will be terrible for for professional sports. We can't protect the integrity. It's going to give people questions about the outcomes of games. And as soon as this happened last year, those tunes changed 
to very different songs, and the leagues began to try to find a way to get a cut. So what's happening right now, to give people an understanding, is that as states are looking at legalizing sports betting, Major League Baseball and the NBA in particular have lobbyists, and they have staff as well, going to every state, and they started trying to get something that they were calling an integrity fee, essentially saying that they were to get uh, 1% of the total amount bet as an integrity fee. They needed this money in their view, in order to protect the integrity of the games. Uh, those who were opposed to that said, well, you know, there's been legal sports betting in Nevada for many, many years, and you haven't had any need for this money to protect your games this far, so why would you need that money now? So that, if you, to understand that 1% of all bets placed in the sports betting industry, that equates to about 20% of profit. So that is an enormous ask, even though it sounds like just 1%. You have to understand that sports betting is a business that operates on, at best, about a 5% margin uh, at all times. So to understand where the leagues are coming from right now, they're going to try to find a way to to get that money one way or the other. Currently, they're doing it in a way um, where they're trying to sell a product, and they're calling it official data. And they're saying to the sports book, if you want our official statistical feed that you can use to uh, settle your bets, then you're going to have to pay us a certain amount in order to get that. And the, there are, I can get way into the weeds on this, but I'll avoid it. There are various sources to get that data. You don't have to go through the leagues. And for many, many years, there are data providers who have offered those, uh, those statistics to sports books without any involvement from the league. So what you have right now is the leagues trying to find a way to get involved in this one way or the other to get some amount of the profit where they have had success is in striking some private deals with certain operators. MGM Resorts, one of the largest casino companies in the country, has now made deals with the NBA, with Major League Baseball, and with the NHL. The NFL has a deal with Caesars Entertainment, and these deals include those official data feeds, but they also include a much larger marketing uh, marketing arrangement where MGM Resorts can now use the logos of those leagues that they have partnered with and try to get market share quickly in this emerging market by saying, hey, we're the official partner of the NBA. Now, or they're not exclusive partnerships, but MGM has certainly gone all in here in the early going with the leagues and the leagues are getting some profit through those private deals. Right. And so I wish, again, I wish we had so much more time to talk with you, but in the short time that we have left, in as much reporting as you've done on this this topic of sports wagering, what has been the most surprising or, or most misunderstood thing that, that you have uncovered? Wow. I think the simple answer to that is the amount of, of, I don't want to say misinformation, there's definitely a lack of information among those who are involved in making these decisions about whether or not states will have sports betting. I mean, I, I listen to more legislative hearings than I could possibly, uh, could possibly capture here at the time we have left. And um, in those hearings, you hear legislators talking about this business, and really, there are a lot of them who have no idea how it operates, who have no idea what uh, you know what is a reasonable tax structure and licensing fee, and they have this idea that you know that uh, sports gambling is sort of still done in the shadows. Uh, you know, in the days that the Wire Act, which governs a lot of the interstate commerce when it comes to sports betting, was passed. You know, we're talking about bookies and mafia and so on. It's such a different industry than that now. So in the end, I think what has surprised me 
uh, is that there's a lack of information about there uh, about just what sports betting is, how it operates, and so on. Among the public, I think the biggest misconception is that the uh, the striking down of PASPA made sports betting legal everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, all it did was it made it so that your state can choose whether they want to legalize it. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. I think there's been a lot of interesting uh, legislative conversation and and different spot, kind of different um, hangups that come up and different speed bumps in those conversations are kind of like, well, but what about this? Yes, but think about this. I think that's a, a really interesting point that you bring up. Well, I appreciate you being with us, Adam Candy, Managing Editor for Legal Sports Report. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a little break, get you to news, all that good stuff, back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. We've been talking about gambling tonight. Pretty specifically, we've been talking about le- the legalization of sports betting, which has been a really interesting topic. But I want to shift a little bit right now. So, state lotteries—it's about a seventy-five billion dollar industry that generates profits through, you know, the misfortune of its participants, right? Because all this advertising kind of promises these big wins and all this big stuff, uh, and makes it look like this escape from our financial woes, right? Well. Uh, we're joined now by Matthew Curtis, who is the founder of Vice Lotteries, which is a company who literally wants to change the game when it comes to lotteries and games of chance. And a really, really interesting way, because I think it really reframes the conversation and the way we think about this topic. Matthew, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us tonight. Hey, Amy, thanks so much for having me on. So so talk about Vice Lotteries and, and explain to us what, what this approach is, because it's really very, very interesting. And, and reading the website looks like you've kind of flipped the whole idea on its head a bit. Yeah, and so um, I think that what you guys have been talking about all show a lot is how the Internet has changed consumer behavior and how it has changed uh, the means of communication between uh, individuals who are taking bets and individuals who are making bets. One of the things that that really allows for is to eliminate the transaction cost, right? So when, when, when all we had was um, you could go to your local store and buy your local numbers or when you could buy, um, you know, just your local scratch-offs, there was transaction costs involved in buying lottery tickets, and therefore someone had to lose money. Um, with the Internet, though, there doesn't have to be transaction costs. And so uh, because betting is a zero-sum game, in order to make it good for the consumers to play, um, you just have to return all of the prize pool back to the winners. Um, it is a very simple solution to um, a, a, a major problem in our country is that lots of people who – see this as a way to get out of poverty, uh, spend over and over again um, to buy their ticket that's going to win them a house or, you know, just a relief from uh, their, their bills. And um, But they're losing 50 cents on the dollar right now. Um, so we are uh, in litigation with uh, several states to be able to compete with the state lotteries um, to return all the money back to the people so that they can essentially use lotteries as a savings account over time. Which sounds like a really enormous undertaking. So as you're going state by state, how what, what is the plan for rollout there? Is that is there a particular state pattern you're looking at? 
Yeah, so what we're looking at is um, for for the for the legal challenges. There's a couple different ones we have, um, and uh, one of the interesting things is that most of the states are not actually operating their own lotteries. So in Illinois, uh, Camelot Games operates for them. It's actually a part of the Canadian government that is running uh, a monopoly lottery in the state of Illinois. Um, so we look for those sort of things that uh, sort of tell a funny narrative, right? So like. IGT in Indiana is operating there. They are a British company um, who makes about $165 million a year, or they take in $165 million a year. And, um, you know, Hoosiers lose um, two to at least $2 for every $1 that the state takes in, and that's before taxes. So, um yeah, so we look for you know when you when you when you think about bringing a case to judges, you um, this is a hard uphill battle for the law. You know the states um, obviously generally have the right to regulate. Um, our basic argument is that they're not regulating; they're just looking for profit. Um, and in their search of profit, they've abandoned um, any any sort of consumer protection that we would generally give them. You know the police power to to regulate. Um, so yeah, and we're you know we're we're a startup in 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 terms of a business and a start in terms of uh, approaching the law. So, you know, we're going out there and um, filing and uh, getting, hearing back what we hear from the court and getting better. So, um, and we have 48, 47 states to go do this in. So, and we really just need to get in one. I think that once, once consumers, you know, consumers are intelligent people. I think that, you know, when we think of lotteries, we think of them as unintelligent because they do lose all this money. But given another alternative, um, I have very little doubt that they would choose to win more or lose less, however you want to frame that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's it's such an interesting idea to, because it really, even bigger, uh, it really reframes this idea of the way we think about vice. And we, we kind of opened the show talking about this with, with history professor Kevin Kaufman about this this idea that, you know, it's it's not okay unless we need money. And it's only okay, it becomes very classist very quickly. Like it's only okay if it's done in gentlemanly ways like horse racing or, you know, or with a card game in a country club, but, but no one else. And I think there's all these exceptions to it. And I, I feel like we're in a moment anyway, as we're having conversations on the state level about about changing the way gambling is regulated, the way recreational marijuana is, is, is legalized or not. I think it seems like we're in a moment where we're kind of revisiting this idea of taboo and how we interact with it. Yeah, and I think that we treat taboo um, as states, as gamblers do, right? So if you, there's a, uh, there's a great, uh, dissertation that was just published by Jonathan Cohen in, from Virginia, and he talks about how there's sort of this, gamblers have this magical thinking that I'm going to be the winner. And most people who gamble will tell you that they've won, even though that can't possibly be true. Um, and states do the same thing when, when they are, um, sort of gabble, gambling with these taboos, right? So when New Jersey first put in its, uh, its lottery, which was the second one, but it was kind of the biggest push, and they went into scratch-offs, you know, they sold it to the people as this was going to eliminate state taxes, um, and then, you know, the history has gone that it's sort of narrowed down to these narrower and narrower scopes of how much money it's actually bringing in. Um, and, and, and that's without even an assumption of how much it's cost in additional services and, and just poverty and just, you know, the, the, for a lot of people, the, the most cogent interaction they have with their government is someone selling them a lottery ticket every day. Hmm. Right. And that, that has to affect your relationship with, um, with, with your government that, they're literally ripping you off. And that's how, that's, you know, you're seeing the Illinois lottery that you're losing all this money to. 
Um, it is a very odd uh, way to interact with a large section of your society. It's very interesting to think about it in these terms. Um, so there is a case in New Hampshire that there's not a ton about it, but, it, but deeply in Google, it's out there, uh, about, about a judge that, that this case has been put before this judge that's, that has the potential to be very precedent setting. Uh, it's really dealing with state lotteries, the Wire Act, and how these transactions that you were describing run by other companies, sometimes foreign companies, are potentially violating the law when it comes to, to, uh, lotteries. Explain that if you would, because I think that's a really interesting case that that probably would uh, start to shift these some attitudes a little bit around this topic. Yeah, and I think it's um, I, I would frame it as it's the conversation has already shift, and now they're interpreting the law in a different way. So, mm-hmm. in the early two thousand during the Bush administration. Um, you know, and, and you talked about this in this time narrative before, is that most people are against gambling. Expanding online was a was a no-no. Um, then early during the Obama administration, I guess in 2011, uh, there was a ruling by the Attorney General which said that the Wire Act only applied to sports gambling and it didn't apply to um, lotteries. What this meant is that for states who wanted to is that they could open up the lottery and they could put it online. Um, I think that six or seven states have done that such far this far, Michigan being one of them. Um, their revenues are growing astronomically year over year. Um, and so that happened. Um, Attorney General Barr recently published a um, uh, a, like a proposed interpretation of the rule, which stated that no, uh, and this happens all the time in, in interpretation of laws, uh, they reversed uh, the Obama era administration and said the Wire Act does apply, um, and it is a real question of law of whether it does or not. Um, you know, as the judge has said, this is a terrible written law, and I think it was a law that was written that everyone, you know, they were against the mafia, so it was going to be broadly interpreted. So the the question Uh, which has come up subsequent to that is not only is online gambling legal or illegal that the states are operating. The second question is, well, all of the data transfers over the wires for every type of gambling. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's scratch offs or whether it's pick threes, like cloud services have taken over the world and cloud services don't exist in every state. And they certainly aren't siloed um, the way that they would need to be. So all of from my understanding, all of the states are operating um, which what in what could be uh, in violation of the Wire Act, um, which I think would put them in violation of RICO, which would be very interesting. Um, and so, so the the states are obviously um, very worried about this. They've filed tons of amicus briefs, and a lot of the uh, companies, IGT, um, Scientific uh, Scientific Games, has also filed amicus briefs, and so. And at a district court level, that's very, very unusual. Um, typically, you see amicus briefs later on. But this is a big deal. This is an $80 billion industry for them. It's really fascinating. There's a, there's so much to this. And I think with so many topics that we, we address on this show, and, and this one is no exception, it seems very straightforward. And as we begin to dig into it, there are social issues and legal issues and so many other things, many, many tentacles to this that I think are really fascinating. We're talking with Matthew Curtis, founder of Vice Lotteries. We're going to take a little break. and we come back, we'll continue this conversation here on 720 WGN.
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. We've been talking about gambling. It brings up a lot of topics. We are joined right now by Matthew Curtis, founder of Vice Lotteries. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about some interesting case law, which it's a it's a tangent I love to indulge because I, I really should have gone to law school because I love talking about case law and thinking about it and looking at it. I think it's such a fascinating topic. So, uh, but back to Vice Lotteries a bit. Um, when we, as you, when you first came up with this idea, uh, was it in it in its current form, or did it take a few evolutions uh, through through the business? Yeah. So at, at first, I actually wanted uh, ways for people to um, get involved in buying stocks, and so I sort of thought of it as, you know, how do you how do you gamify people into um, buying a mutual fund? Essentially, so I thought of it as like, okay, we'll just you know. People love to bet, right? So we'll just make it bet, and they will just get a random distribution of stocks that will just make a mutual fund. And, you know, it it would take some time, but essentially you would just be buying um, the, the fund that you should have bought, but you're doing it in a fun way that gets people involved in um, buying more stocks and bonds. Um, there's way more legal gray area than that, and I think I came back to, like, okay, if we can't do this, like, this is, a you know, right now individuals are losing 50% of their dollar every time they bet. Um, let's solve that problem first before we worried about, you know, the five or 6% they could make on the stock market. Um, so yeah, it started there and, and then it, you know, you always start with your problem first. Um, this is a massive problem and, and looking for a solution, it's, it's relatively simple, right? You, you build the app, you install PayPal and you start taking bets. Um, unfortunately there's like jail that comes on after that. If <laughs> you don't, um, don't think through it a little more, um, a little more in depth. So I actually, um, went to law school to, you know, understand how uh, this area of constitutional law works, which is um, the, most of the claims are in economic liberty, which falls under the due process and equal protection clause. Um, and this is not an area of law that's well litigated. There's not very many people who you can ask and they even know anything about it. Um, so, it, you know, that was that was my approach to it. It was also really interesting just to go to law school. Um, but, um, yeah, so that's that's you know, it, it, it's actually a very simple um, solution. And it, it is more now, you know, what we really want to do is we want to provide the back end and the infrastructure that um, our end users can trust. But we want to build out what's called APIs. And so this is the way um, most applications are built, that one person will provide data and another person will kind of provide the front and the UI. Um, so we really want to be the back end that's providing the, you know, the payments and the security and just making sure the games are, are uh, equitable um, and do return all the money um, for the for as much of the industry as we can. So that's that's sort of how it is, um, you know, because there's so much. You know, this is an eighty billion dollar industry. That's larger than the entire entertainment industry. You know, it's larger than sports. And uh, lotteries should be like creative and fun. And um, you know, this is this is how people are spending their time in their life. And and like it should be way better than just a scratch off. Um, not only should they not be losing, but they should get some more enjoyment out of it. And in in looking through through your website and learning more about your company, I mean, it seems like there is taking out some of the the pieces of the equation. It, it seems like what you'll be left with is is a place where you'll you'll gain financial literacy, but then also stand to lose much less, even if you're not winning. 
Correct. So uh, we, you know, we are going to we set limits on how much people can bet, and so we basically take the frequency of their play um, times the amount that they're they're betting, um, and we just make sure that over a year period they'll make back what they put in. Right. So if you're playing the pick three, um, we'll just make sure the distribution ends up that you're going to come out the same end. And one other thing that we were, you know, talking about was uh, addiction. Right. So we can solve the we can solve the financial problem, but we won't be able to solve the addiction problem with the same way, right? So uh, addiction is different than just losing money, and although losing money is a really bad consequence of this addiction right now, um, so, but we're working with a company called Boundless.ai, and they came from Twitter, um, and what they do is they track users and actually kick them off when they're going into addictive cycles. Um, obviously, this won't be, like, perfect from the start, but it's a really great way um, – you know, that we can at least start to look at user behavior and say, okay, um, this person went from using their app only at home and now they're doing it while they're driving and they're doing it uh, at work. And so we can say we're just going to almost like throttle their um, their experience just to make them to leave, um, which, which, is, uh, which is really something that like while the lotteries are doing online, I encourage them to reach out to Boundless because I think that it's something that should go into every app that's that's doing gambling no matter what. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? Because the way that a lot of state, most state lotteries are structured, it's like, uh, you know, play responsibly, play responsibly. But if you don't, that's on you. <laughs> that's up to you to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the great things about technology. You know, um, technology gets sometimes uh, vilified incorrectly um, for all the tracking. Uh, but when you're thinking about uh Addicted, addiction, um, using that tracking data, not to sell it to advertisers, but to use it to say, okay, you're going through, you know, I have something that I'm selling that's, that is addicting. Um, when I can see you being more addicted, I'm going to stop you from being addicted. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow this down and make this a little annoying so you uh, leave. And, and, you know, that's what's, you know, that, that's a preventative um, means of uh, stopping addiction. And, and there's no way that won't work 100% of the time, but I think it's more effective than just saying, um, you know, play responsibly or whatever the tagline is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So as you have been uh, approaching courts and beginning to, you know, this process of, of trying to make this work in a bunch of different states, what has the what have the biggest hurdles been? What has the feedback been like? So I think the biggest hurdle um, for for me, and this is um, partially my fault is that I just think that everyone should get it right away. Like most entrepreneurs, I, you know, this solution is clear and simple to me. Um, but the, the path of understanding is much longer, right? And so, um, one of our biggest things is that we just have to educate that there is another way to do this. Um, and I think people have so many blinders, uh, about gambling, you know, correctly, right? So, you know, so many people have had family members who have lost a lot. Um, so many, you know, it affects, everyone's life um, and everyone has to take a definite position on it. So kind of figuring out how to crack through that definite position and say like, Hey, there's actually a better way to do this. Um, and for the people who are gambling, like I'm not telling them that what they've been doing has been wrong all their lives. I'm just saying that if you had a better option, um, you would probably want to take it. Um, but that took some time for us to learn how to, how to how to talk about it even because you know at first we started talking about like oh people are losing money you know um, they shouldn't be losing money um, this, this just wasn't effective 
Hmm. It's very, very interesting. So people can head to vicelotteries.com for more, uh, to learn more about it, to explore the site. It's all very interesting. Appreciate you joining us. Matthew Curtis, founder of Vice Lotteries. Thanks so much. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much. All right. We're going to take a little break, get you the news, all that good stuff, and then turn things over to Dave Hoekstra. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. That does it for us this week on the Saturday Night Special. We'll see you next time. Special thanks to producer Vivian Lanou. Had a great time. I'm glad you were here. I'm glad I'm here too, Amy.